Let us go to God in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word for us this day and ask your blessing upon our hearing of it and on the ways that we can be transformed by it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, someone that I didn't know very well came to me and said, I don't really know why I'm here, but I am here. I'm upset about something going on in my life. And they proceeded to talk to me about some difficult things going on for some family members. There was a lot, I could tell there was a lot to this situation, and much of it seemed very much out of control, and also as though there wasn't really anyone obvious to blame for it. There were layers to the situation, like there are to so much that we experience, various things that had happened within their family structure over the years, But at this particular time, there was a deep tragedy being experienced within this already complex family relationship. So this moment became an intersection of sorts, an intersection of challenges attributed to a difficult family dynamic that was already rooted in sorrow for a number of reasons intersecting with the challenge of a tragic death that couldn't be blamed directly on any one part of that existing conflict. These intersections are common in our lives, and they impact how we work through grief and conflict and relationships. Sometimes this intersection can bring healing. I've seen this happen when two family members have been in a tenuous relationship for years, and then they come together in shared grief. I've seen this I've seen this happen multiple times. I've seen them experience healing in the midst of that situation, where healing might not have been possible without that shared experience. There can be healing, but there can also be more tension and conflict. I've seen this too. You probably have as well. In some families, the death of a key family member might bring with it the death of the connectionality of that family, with the glue gone Perhaps also gone might be the hope for a future reconciliation. But in this instance, with this person I didn't really know very well who came to me as a pastor, they came because they were realizing they had nowhere to place their anger. They had nowhere to place it. There was no target. You see, they were used to finding blame in their lives, finding blame when pain struck their family. Often they could point to someone who had been selfish, right? Or someone who had wronged someone else. Or simply made poor decisions that affected everyone in the family. But in this instance, when this tragedy happened, there was no apparent target. And in that moment of not having a target for their anger at the tragedy, they targeted God. They were asking the questions that so many of of us ask. Why, God? Why? Why would you let this happen? Where are you? And I don't know that they specifically asked these exact questions, but you get the idea. And what they said to me, they looked at me and they said, I'm mad at God. And then they said something I'll never forget. They said, I know that's not allowed. I know I'm not supposed to be angry at God. This is something I've heard from others, too. I'm not supposed to be angry at God. 
this was a surprise to me in that moment, and I've learned since then that there are churches who actually teach this, that it's a sin, that it's a sin. Somehow the emotion of anger is a sin, and I think this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The question about anger has never been one of whether anger itself is a sin, but rather the biblical imperatives about anger have always looked at how people react, how people react to anger, how people change their behavior toward others because of their anger. So the question, therefore, is not whether anger is sinful or wrong, including anger expressed against God, but rather the question is what we do with our anger, how we respond to our anger, and how we let anger impact how we live our lives, and perhaps it's the same with God. The question isn't whether it's wrong to be angry at God. When this person came to me and they felt anger toward God, they were specifically concerned that this was wrong. And we looked toward the Psalms. I, I sat with them and opened the Psalms because I knew a little secret, one I've tried to share with you all multiple times. I'll share it again. This little secret that the Psalms, this, this book of the Bible of 150 prayers, the Psalms are filled with words of people crying out to God with their emotions, crying out a wide range of emotions, emotions of despair, sorrow, weakness, fear, and yes, anger. Finally, after reading a few psalms, psalms most of which didn't really resonate, I saw some tears welling up. Tears of hearing words that matched the emotions of this person's heart. Tears of hearing, perhaps for the first time, that thousands of years ago, others were coming before God in prayer, acknowledging anger and fear and sorrow before God. Tears of knowing that what they were feeling was okay. I've heard others say to me when I've shared these words with them, I didn't know you could say that to God. I didn't know that was in the Bible. But it is. And it gives us the reminder that it's okay to bring before God these sides of us that might be angry, these sides of us that experience confusion and loss and sorrow. It's okay to confront God. It's okay to cry out to God and ask the hard questions. It was okay to want to run from God because it felt like God was more friend than foe. It's okay because God was big enough. God is big enough to handle it. God is big enough to handle our disappointments, our anger, our frustrations. God is big enough to listen to our fears. God is big enough, and God can handle it. And I think sometimes we have to start there. We have to sit with that. To not try to solve our, our uh, emotions or do away with them or, or say that we don't have room for our emotions once we come in the door to the church, but to bring all of who we are and sit with it, to take our circumstances, our emotions, our understandings of the world, all of this, and we have to recognize from the outset that in the height of our emotions that God is big enough and God can take it. 
God can take whatever we choose to throw at God. God can take it. God can handle it. When this is our foundation, when, when we are, are able to feel as though we can come before God in this way, in acknowledging our circumstances before God, it can be then, in that, that we're most ready to be reminded of not only God's ability to handle our emotions toward God, but also it can be when we're most receptive to acknowledging the mystery of God's ability and God's promises that God will deliver us. This is more than trivial hope. It's more than having an optimistic outlook. It's more than what I I call saccharine positivity, or those trite quips that fit on a mug or a bumper sticker. God's promises are bigger than this kind of hope, the the quick soundbite version of hope. Throughout Scripture and throughout all of time, God has continued to remind God's people that God is bigger than all the things that we might experience. This was perhaps most true for the people of Israel and the way they experienced great struggles over hundreds and hundreds, really thousands of years. They were in captivity. We hear those those famous stories of their time in Egypt, and then they were in exile. They were confronted with enemies over and over again, enemies who threatened their very existence, and they cried out to God. Throughout those psalms I mentioned, many of those were during times of those difficulties. But in our text this morning from Isaiah, we heard one of the most famous declarations from that prophet. In the midst of their struggles, in the midst of a time of darkness and despair, as the people are in exile, the prophet, speaking the words of God, says, I am about to do a new thing. I'm about to do a new thing. What's interesting here to me is that throughout the prophetic books of the Bible and and culturally during this time in the ancient Near East when this was being written, there was a great deal of suspicion toward those who would focus too much on hopeful messages. In fact, hopeful prophets were were basically um, referred to as false prophets. It was a sign of being a false prophet. And it was really this type of hope I was describing earlier, the the type of hope that attempts to ignore suffering, ignore suffering. Hope that says, well, I'm just going to pack that suffering away and just be positive. Today, uh, people will often refer to this as a toxic positivity, where there's no room for sorrow or no room for sadness or grief or struggle. And so these biblical prophecies that, that were, um, were, where people were, were pre- prophesying hopefulness were seen as these signs that someone was, like I say, a false prophet. How, how interesting it is to me that hopefulness was seen this way. But it wasn't really hope that the people were speaking against, but rather it was the way that hope was being used. Hope was being used as um, simply the expression of human wishes or desires, something of an expression of human desire rather than a hopefulness based on who God was, 
So the focus and attention was away from the identity of God, the the attributes of God and who God was in their lives, and it was more on what they wanted, right? What they wanted, like treating God more like Santa Claus, right? This is what I want. This is what I want. But Isaiah does something different here. The people are in a state of despair. And Isaiah reminds them of God's faithfulness to them and to their ancestors. So he looks back. He reminds them of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt some 600 years earlier. That's a long time, right? That's a long time to look back. But that's what Isaiah does. He points them back to their past. It was part of their cultural identity. It was something that was repeated, stories of it over and over again. And so in this time of exile, when many of them have expressed this frustration and anger toward God, this sense of despair, Isaiah points back. And he reminds them, the Lord who made a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Remember? Remember this God? The God who went before you, the God who rescued your forebears. Remember what God has done? But he's not asking them to remember it in a sort of nostalgic sense. This isn't an attempt to say, hey, look backward. Let's relive the glory days of your people. We do that sometimes. We do it in churches. We do it in our families. We do it in politics and looking at history. The glory days, right? We tend to color our memories even a little bit the further we get from them, especially memories of the things we value. We color them in a way that makes them look and sound better or greater than they really were. And that's why Isaiah says, don't get stuck in these old things. He says, remember them, look back, remember them, but don't get stuck. But instead, instead, dream. And dreams, in this sense, go forward. Dream. Wonder about the possibilities. Wonder about the possibilities of what it might look like for God to make God's presence known to you now. What it might look like for God to provide and to provide in bountiful ways. Isaiah is encouraging the people in the midst of their journey to be bold, to be courageous, to continue. He reminds them that it is God who provides. God who provides water in the wilderness even for the beasts. Even for the beasts. So why wouldn't God provide for them? Why wouldn't God provide for you. This is the God in whom we find encouragement, the God who brings safe passage to God's people, the God who speaks into the unknowns of our lives with a word of strength and a word of possibility, the God who made a dry crossing possible can also bring water into the desert. During the Lenten journey, during our times of walking through challenges or uncertainties, challenges, uncertainties with our health, with our family, with our relationships, with our jobs, 
And yes, even in the midst of transitions in our churches and all of the things that could upend our ordered lives, during all of this, we're reminded again and again that God is so much bigger than all of this, but also that God has already shown what God can do. God has already shown what God can do. Sixty-two years ago, God inspired people to gather in a school building a few blocks away from here and to take a dirt patch in a growing suburb, put their money together, and build a church. God inspired them and provided a path for them. God nurtured the ministry here and let roots grow deep. God built a family in Christ as people faithfully came here and grew their families here in the protective and loving care of so many Sunday school teachers, adoptive grandparents, leaders. God called pastors in different times, from Warren Graham, who guided the chartering, to David Bebb Jones, who pastored for a generation and a half and baptized, married, buried countless saints, guiding them through the most difficult and wonderful times with a legacy that continues today. And Jennifer Lewis, who served this church during some of the most challenging and wonderful years during struggles in our global economy, further wars across the world, but also through all of that, a church family that continued to be a place and a people of love with thriving ministries. And God called several associate pastors and interim pastors. And God called me to this place, walking alongside you and with you during one of the strangest times in modern history. I think we can say that comfortably. A time that has brought its own trials and challenges, but a time that also has brought beauty and has shown me, and I hope shown you, what it looks like when God stirs among humanity in a new and different way. Friends, this is the church, and this is God. And this is how God makes God's presence known in the church and in our lives. We look back. Yes, we look back. We look back, though, to understand that God is doing a new thing. We look back so that we might look forward. We look back finding encouragement and to be reminded that the God who parted the Red Sea and the God who brought the Israelites out of exile and the God who raised Jesus from the dead and the God who has filled this church with laughter and tears and learning and loving and singing and worshiping, the God we follow is a God who is about to do a new thing. And not just in this church, but in our lives in your lives. In the life of little Vincent Gino, God is about to do a new thing. In the death of Peter, being welcomed into God's loving arms, God is about to do a new thing. In the areas of your life that are exciting and the areas that fill you with fear, God is about to do a new thing. This is the story of our faith, of our church, of our lives. 
This is true for PCWS, yes, but it is true in each of our lives because this is God's way. If we could summarize God's way, this is it. I am about to do a new thing. This is God's way when we're watching a loved one slip away. This is God's way when we're feeling lost. This is God's way when we're looking for a light at the end of the tunnel that never seems to be there. This is God's way when we're angry and questioning God. This is God's way when we're struggling with a new diagnosis or confusion or the end of the healthcare road and when we're living through grief that won't go away. And when we're unable to find hope, this is God's way. I am about to do a new thing. Wherever we are in our lives, whatever our journey, whatever our struggles may be, Whatever our circumstances, friends, may we be ones who look to God. Ones who look to our past, to the past of God's people. Ones who look to the past and who anticipate that new thing that God is up to. I am about to do a new thing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.